welcome to Disputes and Perspective. I'm Doug Cherry, a partner in the Disputes team at Reed Smith. This podcast series will discuss disputes-related trends, hot topics and developments occurring in the global legal landscape, and hopefully provide you with some helpful insights and practical tips. If you have any questions about any of the episodes, please feel free to contact our speakers. Hello and welcome to this latest podcast in our Disputes in Perspective series. My name is Oliver Rawkins and I'm counsel in the Global Commercial Disputes team at Reed Smith based in our London office. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the themes emerging this year from the Practice Direction 57 AC Witness Statement Reform. It's now been over 18 months since the reforms uh, were first introduced and a decent set of trials have taken place under this newish process. So now seems a good time to take stock and think about how the reforms have panned out in practice. I will be ably assisted in doing so by my colleague, Daniel Newbound, who is a knowledge management lawyer for our global commercial disputes team. Hi, Dan. Uh, Do you want to just quickly recap on the content of the reforms and what they were trying to achieve? Yeah, sure. Um, so by way of recap, the, the PD57AC reforms were introduced in April 2021 to shake up the process for preparing witness statements for use in trials in the um, English High Court, English Business and Property Courts. Witness statements are used in trials in the English High Court as the way in which the witness can give their basic factual account in writing before the trial. This is so that people know in advance what they're going to say. And it's also rather than having the witness having to stand before the court and recount the facts orally in the hearing as their evidence in chief. But what happened over time is that rather than the witness statements being a sort of a factual account from the witness, they'd become the lawyer's opportunity to get down the story in writing of the case they wanted the judge to hear. So You'd see the you'd find witnesses not only giving their own recollection, but also kind of narrating their way through all the documents in the case, commenting on matters um, outside their own knowledge, etc. And I would say doing all this, you know, great length, sometimes extreme length. Um, so the point of the reform really was to put a stop to all that, return statements back to their basics, so that content-wise they would just include recollection of the witness on the matters of dispute and no more, no less, just that. But there was a bit more of an idealistic element as well. The reform also sought, and this is through a mix of kind of mandatory requirements and quasi-mandatory guidelines, uh, to improve the quality of witness recollection in statements by better management of the statement preparation process by lawyers. So a particular emphasis here was the appropriate use of documents when interviewing witnesses, uh, avoiding overexposure to witnesses to the documents and contamination of recollection you know, so that what they're selling you is really what they remember, not what they've just read in the documentation you've handed to them. Likewise, the reform encourages the use of a proper interview process rather than, I guess, here is your statement, which I've just written for you. Uh, we need to file it by four o'clock. Um, can you read it in the next 15 minutes and sign it? So so all this has been backed up in the reform with a um, with a threat of sanctions and with as, and as with any change to civil procedure and, and with any change to anything, I, I think, there was some anticipation in the profession of potentially dramatic compliance failures and extensive satellite litigation as um, English High Court litigators adapted to this new process or, or even perhaps you could say readapted to the to the old ways of working. 
So, so Ollie, how have things worked out over the past year then? I think overall, litigators seem to have adapted reasonably well um, with examples of non-compliance and the exception rather than the rule. An explanation for this may be that although the reforms require that litigators think more about the preparation process, the strict focus on only relevant factual recollection simplifies the actual end product. If you think about it, short and focused statements have limited scope forever. There also isn't much evidence yet of a negative impact on the trial or you know, trial process. Despite the simplification of content, in a, in a recent case, Mrs. Justice Cockrell, DBE, noted that the statements conveyed a real sense of the witness's own voice and approach and were more than us- usually useful to me. That's a, uh, taken from J.T. Kelly, Lansdowne Group Limited, and Baker and Braid. So this strikes, you know, a clear positive note, though I think time will ultimately tell whether the reforms really improve the utility of trial statements as evidence. But Dan, from what you've seen in the cases, do you think that there are any common themes in non-compliant statements? Yeah, so I think in in most instances of non-compliance, the key underlying factor has been the witness straying into matters outside their own personal recollection. In a recent case, Curtis and Zurich, the the court struck out four witness statements from persons who, you know, were commenting on things which they had about which they had no direct personal involvement. And I guess once a witness is outside their own personal recollection, it means they're so much more likely to also then stray into giving their opinion, commenting on documents and arguing the case, all the things that are an anathema really under the under the new reform. So personal recollection really is key. That's that all said, litigation is a high stakes game. And sometimes clients are very very keen to make sure that their case is put across um, properly in court. Uh, you know, I will tell you, judge, how this is. Uh, and there, I think it can be very difficult sometimes to, to keep witnesses from giving argument and opinion. But, but ultimately, in, in the new world, if a witness has no personal recollection of a matter, then they have nothing of relevance um, to say to the court. I guess you could also say perhaps that some of the examples of non-compliance are possibly more likely where um, practitioners have maybe a mixed practice and uh, do, do different types of work and perhaps, you know, the reform hasn't been top of their radar. So just thinking about that point around sanctions, Ollie, what about sanctions? I mean, I think the, the fear was that when we would that we would see the court making an example of, of non-compliant statements, uh, calling out solicitors who'd failed to comply with the reform, uh, and pay, possibly taking the uh, the nuclear option and, and striking out evidence, witness statement evidence altogether pre-trial, like leaving the leaving a party in the unenviable position of being unable to defend itself because it's got no 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 viable witness evidence to give a trial. I think in relation to that that fear that you're talking about, that concern, I think. The position is a little bit more nuanced than that. Practice Direction 57AC is a procedural reform with teeth, and it does include a suite of sanctions to incentivise compliance with it. However, the trend from case law to date is that um, judges are likely to take a proportionate approach to non-compliance, resorting to strike up only where necessary. We've seen that even in the most egregious example of non-compliance reported, and that, that's in a case um, called Greencastle and Payne, the court allowed the party to resubmit a redrafted statement. The courts have also shown little interest in filleting statements for instances of minor non-compliance. 
That said, judges have taken uh, a firm approach where necessary and emphasised that the proportionality of sanction should not be seen as a carte blanche for parties to play fast and loose with the practice direction. Yeah, Ollie, I think on the same thing, on the same theme, I think it's an interesting issue is is not just you know whether the court's willing to apply, apply a sanction, but also what the what you should do if you're the compliant party. Uh, when do you need to act, and what should, what should you do? The anticipation pre-reform was that we'd possibly see a, a tranche of pre-trial applications on this on this kind of uh, on, on compliance. But I think the theme from the cases we've seen this year is apply at your peril, really. This started off really in late 2021, a case called uh, Mansion Place and Fox. Mrs. Justice O'Farrell set the expectation that parties should seek to resolve compliance early, cooperate and avoid pretrial applications. Um, and what we've seen this year is even more clear guidance emerging. So first case, just mentioned, is Lifestyle Equities in Royal County of Berkshire Polo. Mr. Justice Meller in that case emphasised the parties should only apply to the court in circumstances of serious non-compliance. And, and, and this is significant where possible with an application on the documents rather than requesting an, an, an oral hearing. Curtis and Zurich, case mentioned earlier, the, the court went even further and, and the party was strongly criticised uh, and subject to an indemnity cost order actually for, for launching a pre-trial application complaining of serious non-compliance. And the court felt really that the compliant party had gone too far and characterised many of the issues that they raised as, as petty uh, a waste of time and effort and was critical of the disproportionate costs incurred. So, you know, I think if you, if you for, for compliant parties, you've got the risk is you, people's eyes light up and they think, well, here's a chance to uh, score a point against the other side. But you, you've got to be careful when you do it. Um, in Curtis, uh, another case called McKinney from earlier in the year, McKinney and, and Construction Industry Training Board, the court made the point that, that minor issues can be left to trial and you can deal with them by either ignoring the evidence or flagging, flagging the, the deficiencies during cross-examination. And also trial is the best time to review statements actually because it's difficult to assess minor compliance issues without the benefit of the full context of the other evidence. It's difficult to just review some of these issues in a silo you need to have had. Uh, you need to be at, be at trial to really make a decision. Problem with that is, again, I suppose parties can take that too far. Um, in McKinney, the infringing party tried to brush off compliance issues and kick the, the can down the road to trial, saying, well, this is, we can just all deal with this later. There, the judge was prepared to intervene early on. And this was on the basis that the issues were readily apparent and capable of identification out of context. Uh, the judge, again, making the point that readily apparent problems can be dealt with through an application of the documents rather than requiring an oral hearing. So, so that seems to be the landing point, really. You've got obvious issues, you know, very clear instances of non-compliance. They can be dealt with pre-trial, but the, the guidances apply on the documents. Minor compliance issues, um, they can be can be left to trial. So, Oli, so, so far we've looked at the themes in terms of the, the end product statements themselves. I'm just thinking about some of the more idealistic elements of the reform. How have lit- litigators been coping with a new approach to the use of documents with witnesses? Yeah, so I think this is still the most challenging aspect of the reforms. The practice direction, number 57AC, places major emphasis upon the appropriate use of contemporaneous documentation when interviewing witnesses. And that's with the aim of preserving the purity of witness recollection. Unsurprisingly, this means many litigators are now um, more cautious about the use they make of documents when interviewing witnesses and preparing. Um, their statements. 
The dilemma is that without reference to these documents, witnesses may be unable to say much, particularly in relation to events occurring some time ago. I think most litigators will have experienced situations where they've sat down with witnesses and asked questions and got nothing back. And that's just part and parcel of the um, evidence-gathering process sometimes. I mean, there are mixed signals coming from the courts uh, on this particular point. In a case last year, Global Display Solutions and NCR, the court was critical of the vagueness of witness statements due to underexposure to contemporaneous documents during the statement preparation process. In contrast, in the recent decision of Richards and Speechley Bircham, Russ and Jay rejected criticism that a party's witness evidence had not been properly verified with reference to contemporaneous documentation. In Russell's view, the statements, based mainly on recollection, properly reflected the spirit of the reforms. Had the witnesses viewed contemporaneous documents, it would have expanded the detail, but at the cost of honesty. Striking the right balance may remain a tricky issue for litigators, where what that balance is is likely to be susceptible to differing judicial approach. What I would say is that we haven't yet seen a party criticised for overexposure of a witness to documents. Maybe that's coming down the line, or it could be that the very limited content of witness evidence following the reforms hasn't given counsel much room to delve into exactly what happened during the statement preparation process. Yeah, I would agree. I think one consequence of the reform, um, just from a document's point, is that even more than ever, because we've got limited statements now, you know, documentary evidence takes centre stage at trial, but it's it's got to be deployed outside narrative references within witness statement evidence. And just just this year, I think a notable point is that there's been substantial rewrites of both the commercial court guide and the chancery guides, the two main courts where this reform matters. And both of these guides anticipate this issue of how to deploy documentary evidence in the future by including specific provision uh, within them for parties to prepare, if appropriate, a joint factual narrative uh, for trial. So this would be a a document, uh, not a witness statement, but a a kind of an agreed chronology, which lists everything that happened and cross-references it to the the documents, the kind of thing that used to be put in the witness statements. Um, The rewrites of these guides have also seen greater emphasis on considering sources of evidence and and how it's going to be deployed at trial at the case management stage. So I think the senior judiciary are alive alive to the issue of how to bring documents to life. But... I suppose the, the guides give some broad guidance, but they, I guess, they're largely leaving it to the market to come up to the come up with the right approach to that. Maybe we will see judgments which praise a particular approach or particular types of um, agreed factual narratives as, as particularly helpful in the future. Thanks, Dan. And, and so to round off, I think the early signs are that um, adapting these reforms has involved something of a back to basics approach, which simplifies the content of the statements rather than introducing an unfamiliar process. And I think there's a good uh, point of contrast here um, with the disclosure review document introduced under the disclosure pilot, where litigators struggled initially to deal with the new layer of complexity that that introduced. Ultimately, I think the lasting impact of these reforms will probably be the cultural change um, in how solicitors approach um, the process of interviewing witnesses. I think it also begs the question, how much did we really think about the interview process before these reforms um, came in? Or did we just get on with the job of building the client's story from the documents we had? 
these reforms have meant we need to plan out the interviewing process and think much more about what we're doing. And when you think about that, you, you could also easily say that the extra planning might increase costs. But if it also means a better statement with less drafting and redrafting and review, often by senior business people, then the investment might very well be worthwhile. So with that thought brings an end to our discussion today. Thank you very much for joining this episode of Disputes in Perspective. If you have any questions, please reach out to Dan or me, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode. Disputes in Perspective is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's litigation and dispute resolution practice, please email disputesinperspective at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.